Muhammad Ali was uh, known for being brash and confident when he spoke. He'd say, I am the greatest. You know, he'd say, he'd tell people, you know, I should be a postage stamp. It's the only way I'll ever get licked. And, and he'd say, even if you dream of beating me, you better wake up and apologize. And he was very boastful, and, and many people questioned him on his boastful speech. But he'd respond, you know, it's not bragging if you can back it up. He'd, he'd say, bragging is when a person says something they can't do, I can do what I say. Now, we, we legitimately take issue with his bragging, but if you ever saw him fight, he really could back up what he said. So the problem with boastfulness is it's nothing to do with whether or not you can back up what you say. The problem with boastfulness and bragging is that our skills and abilities are gifts from God. That not only did he give us in the past, but he actually is presently sustaining in us. So when we boast in ourselves, the problem isn't even that we've identified something that sets us apart, that we could be praised for. There really are things that people are better than most at. The problem with boasting, it's really akin to plagiarism, right? We're taking credit for something that really comes from someone else. That's what makes it all the more confusing when the Bible tells us to boast. That's right, the Bible tells us to boast. It doesn't use that word to describe speaking with excessive pride for yourself like we might expect. That's how we use it often today. The Bible teaches us that we need to find and know the right object in which we should boast. So in Romans, Paul, he's already addressed a Jewish boast. It's it's one that sounded biblical. He talked about the Jewish person who, in in Romans 2.23, was boasting in God's law. I mean, it sounds biblical. Sounds right, but it wasn't. That Jewish person, they held God's law in high, high regard, and they were confident that it was able to help them make themselves right with God and secure for themselves salvation. So they boasted in the law, but really they were confident in themselves to keep the law. That was the problem. So when Paul confronted their boasting in chapter 2, he wasn't saying that we should never boast. That you should never think or speak about something with joyful exuberance and confidence. See, think about when, when something captivates you. When you think so highly of something that it dominates your thinking, it's going to come out with joy. It's just going to spill over into joy. You're going to talk about it. When you look up to something with extreme confidence... That's how you're going to talk about it. That's the kind of boasting that that Paul's talking about in our passage this morning. And that is the word that he uses in chapter 5 and verses 2 and 3 and verse 11. Now, most translations, including the ESV, they translate it here, rejoice or exalt. But this is the same word that Paul used in Romans 2.17 and and 2.23 when he was talking about that Jewish boast. He's making a connection to those verses, and I think the NIV's translation of boast is not only the most literal, but it's the best option. So rejoice and exalt, they don't quite get that confidence that Paul's emphasizing. So our boast is not in ourselves. Unlike Muhammad Ali's boast, and unlike the the Jewish person's boast in the first century, 
We are not boasting in ourselves. Ultimately, what Paul's describing is boasting in God. That's what he'll say in verse 11. So, the hope that comes with that, this joyful confidence, it's our boast, it's our hope, that's what Paul talks about throughout this chapter. It's not wishful thinking, and when we use the word hope, we think, this is what I want to happen. No, what Paul's talking about is confidence that something is going to happen in the future. It's certainly going to happen. And this hope that he's going to talk about in chapter 5, it's a hope that justification brings. The justification by faith that he's been talking about in Romans 1 through 4. So you can turn to Romans 5. And we see there, there are three aspects to this hope. That comes with justification by faith in Jesus. And Paul's going to take us through that in Romans 5 verses 1 through 11. And again that's found on page 886. Romans 5 verses 1 through 11 and verses and page 886. So what Paul teaches in these verses is that joyful confident hope is experienced by present circumstances confirmed by past action, and explained by future salvation. This hope that comes from justification by faith, it's experienced in the present, through present circumstances, it's confirmed by the past, it's past action, and it's explained by the future, a future salvation. Now, the question is, why did Paul think it was so important to teach us about this? And the answer is because what you hope in really defines your life. And that's what gives you the goal for your life. We, we can see that in our lesser versions of hope, you know, the way we use hope. When a person, a young person, for example, hopes to be in a certain career, that hope is going to dictate the choices that they make in order to get to that career. Or when a person hopes to retire at a certain age, the decisions that they make are going to be determined by that hope. It's going to direct them. Now, how much more is that the case with our hope? Biblical hope is not, I hope this happens, but something we know for certain is going to happen and we're joyfully looking forward to it. And when that's the case, that hope directs our lives. It gives us direction. It gives us energy to do what we want to do and are called to do. Martin Luther went so far as to say, everything that is done in this world is done by hope. So Paul's going to show us how this hope is a part of our lives in these three different ways. And so the first is this joyful, confident hope is experienced by present circumstances. And so if you look at chapter 5 of Romans in verses 1 through 4, we'll see this. Verse 1 begins with the word therefore. That's, that's basically pointing back to, in this case, what Paul's been talking about in chapters 1 through 4. He's making a turning point in his letter. And he summarizes what he's referring to in the first clause. It says, since we have been justified by faith. Paul's been teaching us that we are all under the power of sin. That we face God's righteous wrath. We deserve that. That's the bad news. Then he gives us the good news. The good news is that God sent his son to rescue us from the power of sin and from his own wrath. So Jesus came. He lived a perfect life. He did not deserve to be punished. And yet, he died. And that death was a sacrifice wherein he substituted his life for ours. So, 
He paid a punishment that we should pay. And then we receive his righteous status. So by faith, we are accepted by God as righteous, even though we're sinners. And, and what Paul's been talking about, this righteous verdict, that is a judicial idea. It's, it's, it's something that comes from the courtroom scene. And the courtroom that Paul's specifically thinking about and talking about is the end time court. We're all going to have to stand before God as judge, specifically Christ as judge. And in that day, there are only going to be two verdicts. Righteous or condemned. And the righteous person, they get to enjoy God's blessings for eternity. The condemned person is punished for eternity. And what Paul does in Romans is he talks about justification, which is that righteous verdict in the end. But he says we experience it now. When we believe. We have been justified now by faith. We've experienced an end time verdict already. As soon as we trust in Jesus, as soon as we trust in the one who was our sacrifice, who provides forgiveness, who gives us a righteous status, even though we're sinners. And so what Paul's saying here is that now that we have this righteous status, we have it by faith in Jesus. We also have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. The Old Testament has lots of references to peace, and it uses the Hebrew word that many of us are familiar with, shalom. So It's describing this peace that a person has when they're in a harmonious relationship with God. And in that relationship, they experience God's blessings. Problem was, Israel did not experience that shalom because of their sin. And yet God promised through his prophets, one day they would. One day they would experience his shalom. Paul is going to, later in chapter 10, he's going to quote Isaiah 52, 7. Which says, How beautiful upon the mountains, I read it this morning, how beautiful on the mountains are the feet of him who brings good news, this gospel, who publishes peace, shalom, who brings good news of happiness, who publishes salvation, who says to Zion, your God reigns, the kingdom of God. When the kingdom of God arrives in the end, God's people are going to experience his shalom. And Paul says here, though, We have peace with God now. Now, it's very clear to us, the kingdom of God is not here in all its fullness. And we remember why Jesus, when he came, he's the king of the kingdom. When he came, why he did not bring in that kingdom right then. Had Jesus brought in the kingdom, when he first arrived, no one could enter it. Because the only way to enter that kingdom is through his death and resurrection. Because currently, what Paul's been teaching us is we're not under, naturally, apart from Christ, we're not under God's rule. We are overall, but we're actually under a different authority and rule. We're under the power of sin. That's who we're submitting to. Even though God God is in charge, that's who we submit to. We are God's enemies apart from Christ. So we're standing in opposition to God, rightly facing his wrath, but it's through what Jesus has done that we can be restored by his standing in our place, establishing our righteous status that we don't deserve. That's how our hostility with God comes to an end. No longer do we have the master of our sin. Now Jesus is our Lord. No longer do we have to submit to our sin. 
we submit to the Messiah. So we are now at peace with God. This is what Paul's getting at in verse 2. He says that it's through our Lord Jesus Christ that we also have obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand. Our relationship with God was marked by hostility. Sinful rebellion on our part toward God. Wrath from God toward us. Hostility. We're enemies. But through Christ, we are now at peace with God. The end of hostility. That's the picture here. And, And so... The picture Paul paints with these words, we have obtained access, it's of enemies who've been reconciled. The, the related verb to this word, access, Josephus in the first century, he's a historian, Jewish historian in the first century, he used this to talk about enemies being brought over to the other side. So the idea is through reconciliation, we have been brought over to the other side, but look at how he describes the other side. He describes it as being brought into this grace. What grace? This is what Paul's been talking about. The experience of God's undeserved kindness, the experience of God's favor. And think about it from the standpoint of of an enemy that's brought over to the other side. That enemy, from then on, when they're brought over, when they're reconciled, they get to enjoy the favor of the ruler they've been reconciled with. We have been brought over to the other side. Now we enjoy the grace, the favor of God, and we do that through his son's sacrifice. The way Paul puts it here, he emphasizes that that took place, the peace we we experienced took place in the past, but we now experience a present situation from that. So the form of the verb translated have obtained, and the phrase that follows it, in which we stand, it emphasizes that we now continue to experience God's grace. It's not just we've experienced it in the past, but we now currently experience it. So right now, we really are beginning to experience God's shalom. His favor that's been restored to us through this harmonious relationship. And in light of that, Paul says we boast in hope of the glory of God. He summarizes our situation before Christ in Romans 3.23. We are continually falling short of the glory of God. It's that glory that Adam and Eve shared in, in the garden, when they reflected God's glory. They shared in fellowship with him. They shared in his glory. And our experience in Christ, it's actually even greater than Adam and Eve's. Through Christ, we're more than restored to their situation. We're going to be glorified. We're going to reach the goal of what God intended for humanity before he even created the world. And so, in the present, through this peace we have with God, we're already experiencing joyful confidence that one day we will experience that shalom to the full when we share in God's glory when Christ returns. But that's not the only way that that joyful, confident hope is experienced in our present circumstances. Not only do we have that confidence, that hope, by our present experience of peace with God, but we also have an ever-increasing hope, an ever-increasing confidence by our present experience of suffering. That's the way Paul puts it. He says, not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings. And remember, that word rejoice could be translated boast we we have such joyful 
confidence in God's promises that the suffering we experience, it by no means diminishes that hope. It actually encourages it. That's why we boast in our sufferings. We, we continue to live with such confidence that God is going to keep his promises. That we're encouraged to do that all the more by our suffering. Now, before we look at how Paul can say that, just think about what he means by suffering. Because sometimes the Bible means that in the sense of our allegiance to Christ. That we suffer for our allegiance to Christ. But in this case, uh, Douglas Moo, he pointed out how the beginning of chapter 5 and the end of chapter 8 share a lot of similarities. And when you look at the suffering Paul mentions in chapter 8, specifically in verse 35, it includes famine, nakedness, danger, and sword. That's more than just allegiance to Christ, the suffering we experience. That's everything you experience in this fallen world, the suffering you experience in this fallen world. This world has been impacted by sin, and we suffer in it. And yet, that suffering actually works to stimulate even greater hope in God's promises for every genuine believer. believer. And how is that the case? Paul explains that in verses 3 and 4. He says, the reason we boast in our sufferings is because suffering produces endurance and endurance produces character and character produces hope. So suffering is the context in which you learn endurance. If you think about the reverse, not having suffering, comfort. You don't learn endurance and comfort. What comfort brings is the thought that we've already reached what we were meant to reach. It kind of tricks you into thinking we've arrived at what, at what life is all about. Suffering actually makes you think, no, wait, this isn't our home. This isn't what we're looking forward to. And through that experience, we endure because we're looking forward to something else. It's only in that context that we can learn to endure the pseudo Shalom that we experience in life actually discourages us from looking forward to our hope. Suffering makes it all too obvious. So suffering shows us we need to endure until we reach our true goal. That's the context in which we learn to endure. To keep following Jesus rather than settling just for these comforts. And and then it's through endurance that we experience this idea, translated character. Some translations have proven character. One dictionary says that this word, it's used to refer to what causes something to be known as true and genuine. Translates it evidence or proof of genuineness. The idea is that you passed a test, and by passing that test, you proved your genuineness. So, You endured suffering. And by doing that, it demonstrates that your faith is genuine. It's the real McCoy. You really are a follower of Jesus. You remember in Jesus' parable of the soils. I mention this a lot. The seed that landed on the shallow soil. There was bedrock just below the surface. And that seed, it sprouted quickly. And it represented, Jesus said, it represented those who hear the good news. And they respond quickly with joy. I mean, there's an emotional response. But then Jesus described the sun coming out and that plant drying up and dying. He said that illustrates those who don't remain. When difficulty comes, they don't remain. So 
the follower that fell away, it, it just proved that they weren't. That their faith was not a faith that comes from the transformed good soil. The transformed heart. It was a, a version of faith. But not a faith that will last. So when we endure, when we endure in the face of suffering, we're actually demonstrating the proof that, that our faith is wrought by that changed heart. We prove that our faith isn't just a fair weather faith. We demonstrate we are true disciples of Jesus. So as we demonstrate that proof through endurance, that instills with us hope, instills within us hope. It, it encourages this joyful confidence. We know, hey, one day God will keep his promises because we really are his. We really belong to him. So it, it is in the context of present suffering that we experience joyful, confident hope in more and more. Suffering is the path to endurance. Endurance proves that we belong to Jesus, and that proof gives us confidence that what we're looking forward to will happen. So joyful, confident hope, it's experienced by present ex- the, the present experience of peace with God, but also the present experience of suffering. And that's not all that Paul teaches here. He goes on to say that this hope that comes with justification, it brings in verses Five through eight, confirmation. We learn that joyful, confident hope is confirmed by past action. We experience this hope in the present, but it's confirmed for us by something in the past. And he begins to explain that in verse five. He says, and hope does not put us to shame. And I think that the the ESV or the, the CSB and the NLT, they translate this in the future sense. It's because the timing of being put to shame will be in the future. So the idea of being put to shame is throughout the Psalms. One Psalm, Psalm 22.5, David describes the, Israel's fathers. He says that they put their trust in God. It says, to you they cried and were rescued. In you they trusted and were not put to shame. So they cried out to God for rescue. They trusted in him. And as he kept those promises... That hope was not put to shame. Had he not kept the promises, that's how they would have been put to shame. So the same thing is true for us. Our experience. We can be confident that our hope will not be put to shame. Now, how is that the case? Paul says the source of our confidence comes from the fact that God, God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who's been given to us. Now, he's going to tell us what that love is in verses 6 through 8. He's going to describe it. <clears throat> God has done something that he describes as his love. It's something specific, something particular. And Paul's saying here that he has poured that loving act into our hearts when he gave us his Holy Spirit. The Old Testament talked about the giving of the Holy Spirit. It, it talked about when the new covenant happens, when the, when the new age is ushered in. That God would pour out his spirit. Joel 2, verses 28 and 29 says, And it shall come to pass afterward that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. Your sons and daughters shall prophesy. Your old men shall dream dreams. And your young men shall see visions. Even on the male and female servants in those days, I will pour out my spirit. Peter 
at the day, on the day of Pentecost, he pointed to this very text and said, this is what's happening right now. So in Acts 2, 6, he says, this is what, what you're seeing, the spirit in action right now, is what was uttered through the prophet Joel. And he quotes Joel 2, 28 through 29. It's happening. It's fulfilled in that. Paul, he elsewhere talks about the Holy Spirit as the seal that guarantees that we will inherit God's promises. So God is present with us by his spirit. And his presence, that's where his act of love makes this permanent residence in us, in our hearts. That's why we know that our hope is not going to be put to shame. We have the spirit of God, and he guarantees that God's act of love in the past, he has lavishly poured that into our hearts. So what is the act of love? It's that Paul explains that in verses 6 through 8. And what he's doing in 6 through 8, he's showing how extravagant God's love is, especially in comparison with human love. So he sets the stage for it by explaining these are the circumstances when God did this loving action for us. He did so while we were still weak. Now that weakness... It's not neutral. It's not simply our helplessness to save ourselves. If it was just that, you know, we could look at it as this unfortunate circumstance that we, we had no power over. It wasn't our fault. But this weakness is parallel with the word ungodly. It's parallel with the word sinners in verse 8. There is a moral quality to this weakness. We deserve to be in this situation where we could not save ourselves. We put ourselves here. That's when God acted on our behalf. He says it was at the right time, or more simply, at this very time, in the time of our weakness. Paul's using that phrase to emphasize the fact that this is precisely when God acted. That's when Christ died for the ungodly. It's the idea that that the Messiah would die, I mean, that was hard enough for a Jewish person to hear. They weren't looking forward to the Messiah coming and dying. But then to hear on top of that, that when the Messiah died, he didn't die for the righteous. (laughs) He died for the ungodly. That would have been more than anyone could take. It was a stumbling block, as Paul puts it. Yet, Paul goes on to show just how different God's love is than ours. He says, for one, we'll scarcely die for a righteous person. He's saying, how many people would, would die simply because they know somebody or, or die for somebody simply because they do the right thing? How, how many people would that motivate to die for because you see somebody who does the right thing? It's not very big. Scarcely, he says. Now, he does admit that, that the percentage increases if a person, if it's a good person, if it's a person that that brings you some benefit. Something personal. They're more personal in that sense. Douglas Moo puts it this way. He says that Paul's talking about here, the pinnacle of human love. The pinnacle of human love is the giving of one's life for a person one is close to. He says a spouse, child, a combat buddy. That's what humans do. That's, that's human love at its best. Well, what about God? Verse 8 says, God shows his love for us that while we were sinners, Christ died for us. We weren't righteous. 
We weren't close to God. There was no benefit that God was receiving by our relationship with him at the time. We were his enemies. We were hopeless moral cases, ungodly, sinners. That's the state we were in when Christ died for us. So how can you be sure that what you're looking forward to as a Christian won't just blow up in your face? Where's the confidence come? Where's the confirmation? It's the love that God has already demonstrated for us. He's shown us this love when we didn't deserve it. He didn't show us this love only for those who proved that they could deserve it. If that were the case, we'd be on shaky ground. You know, if God had acted with strings attached, we would have no certainty. Our hope really would just be wishful thinking. But God acted for us when we had absolutely nothing going for us. God chose to do what he's done through, through his son's death for sinners with nothing going in our favor. He didn't just do it for those he knew was going to make a good choice. He didn't act because he knew there were going to be people out there who were, were going to respond positively to his salvation. He acted like this towards ungodly sinners. We need to think about that. He poured that, that loving act into our ungodly hearts by the transforming power of his spirit. So you cannot read what Paul's saying here and walk away with a sense, well, you know, I responded. I mean, I, I deserve it more than that guy because I responded. If you think that way, after reading what Paul says here, think again. This does not let us think that way. What's even more startling is the way that Paul, he dispels any notion that God the Father is this angry God, that God the Son is, is, is appeasing with his, his act. This is the love of God the Father he's talking about here. It was at his initiative that Christ came to die. Now, Jesus was absolutely willing. You know, the will of the Father and the Son were perfectly aligned. So this is not cosmic child abuse. But this is just as much the love of the Father as it is the love of the Son. How many fathers would much more be willing to suffer in the place of their child? Now imagine you are not just loving. Imagine that you are love. This is God. God is love. Imagine the amount of love it would take to give up your son for sinners, for the ungodly, for your enemies. His love, God's love is so much greater than ours. Even the best versions of human love. And that's the confirmation. The love that God's shown us is amazing love beyond anything that we would ever do. That is the confirmation that what we look forward to we're going to get it. it. We will not be put to shame. God has acted on our behalf, not because we were lovely or lovable, but because he is love. And he sealed that act for us by giving us his spirit. So our joyful, confident hope 
is confirmed by that past act of love. And then lastly, Paul explains in verses 9 through 11 that our joyful, confident hope is explained by future salvation. And verse 9 begins to draw a conclusion here with what Paul's been saying. It begins with the word, therefore. And it does so with this argument that goes like this. Since God's already done the more difficult act, well, how much more certain is this less difficult act? It begins with, since we have now been justified by his blood. Again, this is a hope that comes with justification that he's been talking about in chapters 1 through 4. Based on the fact that we have been justified by means of his blood. That's a reference to Christ's sacrificial death. Based on the fact that we've been granted a righteous status by means of Christ's substitutionary sacrifice. Exchanging his righteous life for our sinful life. Based on that more difficult act. How much more certain is our hope? Only he doesn't say hope here. He defines it. He says, how much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God? That's our hope. That's what we look forward to. That in the end, when we stand before God, we will be rescued from the wrath of God that we deserve to experience. And why is that the easier thing for God to do? To save us from his wrath. Verse 10 explains, for if while we were enemies... We were reconciled to God by the death of his son. Much more now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. If God chose to make peace with us, to put an end to our hostility by the sacrificial death of his son, even while we were sinners, even while we were still his enemies, then now that we are reconciled, now that we are presently in a state of peace with him, not enemies anymore, now that we're experiencing his favor, his grace, how much more likely is it that he is going to save us by his life? Whose life? Christ's life, his resurrected life. Now that Jesus has been raised and seated at the Father's right hand, now that Paul, Paul's going to point out later, now as Jesus is interceding for us presently, we are in an infinitely better situation. So if we were in the worst possible relation to God, his enemies, and that's when he sent his son to die for us, then how much more when we're in the best possible situation, restored to his side, at peace with him, having the sacrifice and risen and ascended Jesus at his right hand, how, how much more certain are we that he is going to rescue us in the end from the wrath that we deserve? That's the security of this pronouncement we have, that we are righteous. The pronouncement we receive by faith in Jesus. We're righteous. We're accepted. And it's certain. It's not based on our righteous status. It's not based on any righteousness that we've done. It is solely based on what Christ has done for us. And it comes with absolute certainty that when we're finally standing in that courtroom, what God said now that we are righteous and not condemned is also going to be stated then. It'll be confirmed. Even though we deserve to experience his wrath for eternity, we can be absolutely certain he will rescue us from that wrath because of the love he's already shown us. Paul adds the exclamation point here in verse 11. 
not only is our hope of future salvation absolutely certain, but we, we rejoice in God. And again, we could say we boast in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have received now the reconciliation. We, we express this joyful confidence. We burst with joy. We effuse with confidence, not in ourselves, in God. Just as God commanded his people in Jeremiah 9.24, when the Lord said, let him who boasts, boast in this, that he understands and knows me. So our boasting has nothing to do with us. This verse, the verse before this in, in Jeremiah 9 says that we don't boast in our, our wisdom or might or riches. It is nothing in us. We can only boast in God, and we can only do that through our Lord Jesus Christ. Were Jesus not the Messiah, we couldn't make that boast. Were Jesus not our Lord, our Lord, we could not make that boast. And that was the problem with the Jewish person in Paul's day, thinking that they could boast in God apart from Jesus. They could not boast in God through the law. We can only boast in God. We can only, have this, we can only express this confidence in God by knowing him through the Messiah, through our Lord Jesus. We can only be confident when we submit to Jesus as our Lord. Can't do that because we did anything to acquire this. We do not base our confidence on it based on anything we have done. We've now received it. That's pointing to the fact it was given to us. And it was given to us again when we were ungodly. Sinful. Not when we took the right step toward God. It was given to us. It was acted up for us by God's initiative. So no genuine Christian could be brash like Ali before God. No. We were not the greatest. We are not the greatest. In fact, from our standpoint, we're the worst. It's as Isaac Watts puts it in his hymn. No more, my God. I boast no more of all the duties I have done. I quit the hopes I held before to trust the merits of thy son. Do you realize what this means? It means that we don't live the Christian life resting on our performance. Our security has nothing to do with our efforts to obey. Now, we do. Paul's going to go on to talk about how we do obey. We want to obey. But we don't rest our hopes on our ability to obey. How draining would that be? If you're like me, you are constantly confessing your sin to God. And you feel shame daily for your sin. We ought to be making progress. And by the Spirit, we, we do. We, over, over time, we do make progress. But that's not what we look to when it comes to having assurance that one day we will be rescued from eternal contempt and instead we'll receive eternal life with God. Our, rest, our hope rests only and completely in God and what he's done for us in Christ. So do you know that hope? Do you know the certainty or with certainty that when you die, even though you don't deserve it, 
God will accept you in heaven? Do you have joyful confidence that that's true of you? If not, I would just point to what Jesus has done. And Jesus is a real man. Actually lived. Around 2,000 years ago. Now, there are many people in history that have done some very neat things that have absolutely nothing to do with us. But this individual, this man, he came and he claimed to be the king that God was going to send at the end of time to judge the world and establish God's reign over the universe. That was his claim. That's not the claim of just a good teacher. And then, on top of that, this man was killed, and not just in any way. He, he was tortured to death on a cross. That was the most horrifying execution the Romans had. So that should have been the end of it. And yet it wasn't. Somehow this fearful little band of followers who scattered when he was arrested, they, they somehow gained this strange boldness. Why? They said it was because God raised Jesus from the dead. That's what they believed. That's what I believe. That's what our church believes. That's what we want you to believe. Jesus said he came to give his life to rescue the many from their slavery. From their slavery to our own sinful selves. If you recognize that truth, that you're a sinner who in the end you deserve not reward, but you deserve punishment. And what Jesus has done, that's good news. Jesus died on behalf of the ungodly, on behalf of us. Who's the us? Everyone who believes that Jesus did that for them. That's what we want you to believe. That Jesus died to give you a righteous status with God, to bring you back over to his side. And for all of us who believe that, we can have this joyful confidence that God is going to keep his promises to us. And this peace with God that we've begun to experience, it's going to, we can have confidence it's going to reach its fullness in the end when we stand before God. We experience that confident hope now in our present experience of peace with God and by our experience of present suffering in a fallen world. That suffering doesn't discourage us. It actually strengthens our hope. That suffering produces endurance. That endurance proves that we are who we say we are. And through that proof, our confidence that we can look forward to salvation in the end, it grows stronger. And it's confirmed by what God has already done for us in the past. The love he's already shown us in sending his son to die for us while we were woefully helpless ungodly sinners, that love, he sealed with his spirit and giving him to us, that love confirms this joyful, confident hope. And because now that that God has done the more difficult act of reconciling us to himself through Jesus, while we were his enemies, how much more confident can we be that he's going to do the less difficult thing of saving us now that we are at peace with him, now that we have been brought over to his side, now that his son is sitting at his right hand. The one who died and rose again for us.